this is Zoe. I am Zephyr. Zephyr, thank you very much for coming to my podcast. Can you introduce yourself to us? Sure. I am an astronomer and a climate activist. I grew up in London, I've moved around quite a bit, lived for a while in New York, and now I live in Leiden in the Netherlands. So now you're working for a university as a researcher? Yes. And how do you find academia? It's, it's a drag. I mean, academia is strange. It's a place that you work for so many years to be allowed into and you get there and at least for me there's a slight sense of like oh is this what it was all for? I enjoy the work. I spend almost all of my days doing kind of pencil and paper maths and I really love that but there's as much kind of being an administrator for the institution as there is doing actual thinking research and I'm actually quite sad at the moment my contract doesn't have very much teaching in it and teaching is one of the things I really love to do. Oh really? And I don't get so much chance here. I'm sorry to hear that, because some researchers are the opposite. They only want to focus on research, not like teaching. Yeah, I think those researchers, maybe they just truly are more productive. I feel like they already know what they want to do and are doing it. Whereas I very much am still, like I am producing new interesting work, but I still feel like I'm learning about the world enough to do interesting things. Yeah, I feel like I've got a lot of learning left to do. And I think teaching is, once you reach a certain level, teaching is one of the most effective ways to learn. It's a much more challenging form of learning than just learning through a test. Since when do you start teaching? Since you were an undergraduate or master's student or when you were in the US? Uh, I actually started teaching before I finished school, before I finished high school. That's a long time. Yeah, I was doing private tutoring for people around London. Which was fab. Amongst other things, it was really nice that, you know, people trusted me enough to let me tutor their kids. And teaching, like almost all skills, some people say that they have a talent for teaching, but I think all talent is the enjoyment of practice. And I think whenever we start doing anything new, we haven't had much practice and we're not very good at it. I feel a bit sorry for those children who I was helping teach them their GCSEs because I don't think I was doing the best job, but I've basically sought out some teaching the whole time through my life. And so... Hopefully I'm okay at it now. Did you continue teaching when you were in the US? Yes, I used to teach in the university, particularly to students. Uh, so I was at Columbia University in New York for three years of a PhD that I did not finish. And I would teach students from Barnard College, the women's college across the road. But I also did a lot of private tutoring for families, mostly in the Upper West Side, so rich families for kind of school level and university undergrad level. How did you like New York? I love the city. It is a completely amazing place. It's it's huge and it's got that sense when you go to cities that you can just completely disappear into them. You are negligible on the scale of the city. It's a place very much built around wealth and we weren't terribly paid as grad students, but we certainly weren't well off. And so only some of the city was open to us. But also, it's a city that has always, it's so large, it's had kind of every community in it. It has big bohemian communities. There's lots of interesting community things going on that don't require a very heavy price tag. It truly does feel like a place, even like growing up in London, London is a huge city, but New York, it is true that it really doesn't stop. The city is active at all hours. Uh, it's kind of always thumbing with life. The street is always noisy. And that was actually really electric for me when first moving there. Did you like your years there? Were you happy? I really 
more and more did not enjoy living in the US. I found that it was really a place where you are seen to deserve the survival that you can afford. And that was something I wasn't really expecting when I went in and really worried me seeing lots of people struggling for healthcare, struggling for any kind of social support, starting. So I'm also autistic and trans. And those were kind of things that were dawning on me while I was there doing my PhD and starting to realize that in this society where your kind of right to survival is based on your productivity, if I was to have a period of meltdowns and not be productive, that life would get harder and harder for me there. And that was really terrifying. I really felt like the uh, at any moment the carpet could be pulled from under me. It was a very eye-opening, quite surprising place to live. Do you see your fellow students struggle because of the situation that you described? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways being in academia is quite a benign profession. You most, most of the labor is sitting and typing at a computer or looking at images. But I think that's astronomy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's very astronomy based. But, you know, every, every field must have images. I think that the labor conditions of academia are actually really bad, kind of universally. But I definitely saw we're on these like four year ish contracts. And when they come to an end, you just have to find a new one over and over again. There's no guarantee of any that you will find them, that you will keep meeting your subsistence needs. And there's lots of capacity for you to have to just pack up and go to a completely different part of the country, even part of the world. It's a very insecure lifestyle. And I think particularly in the US where an insecure lifestyle translates into like, truly your capacity to survive is in some jeopardy. It's... I saw a lot of my fellow students losing a lot of their like productive and creative and passionate energies to worrying about being able to meet subsistence, to find the next job, to be doing enough to deserve their place in the world, which really reduces the amount of good and interesting work that people are creating, which is a great shame. I think yeah, it's a very flawed system. Very clever. Yeah, wonderful. Like they are brilliant scientists. And there's been so much investment both by them and by broader systems to get them there. And then to some degree, they're wasted, which I think is true kind of all the way up the chain of academia. Well, I understand. (laughs) But you mentioned that you're trans and you're autistic. Did you find that out during your three years in the US? So living in New York was the first time that I really had much contact with trans people. I sort of knew that trans people existed growing up, but the level of trans consciousness as a young person in the UK was very low and quite negative, like more likely to be the butt of a joke than portrayed as a full and naturalized human being. But New York is a kind of place where many people collect. And I think it was a place that has a more developed and open queer community. And so even in academia, even in my department, there were undergraduates and master's students who are trans and there's a real moment of being like oh this isn't just a thing that exists far off and kind of in a semi-reality this is a real possibility a thing that people can do and that it took, took quite a while but that sets a lot of gears turning you're like oh these are questions I've never asked about myself and now I'm asking quite a lot <laughs> and then the other half of your question was about discovering autism which is in some ways, similar process, but very different. And realizing that my social reactions to people weren't particularly 
natural understanding, empathising and responding, there were quite a lot of learned responses, which having been in the UK all of my life until then, people would tell me particularly like in a professional context, people would kind of be like, I don't understand why you're reacting like this. Like some people thought that at times that I was being aggressive, which is a thing I really try never to be or like uh, pugilistic. That that's was, a hard word for Yeah, me. sorry. That's not, <laughs> it's not even a very good word. That I was being kind of combative or just kind of stubborn. And all of these weren't things that I was intending to put out into the world. They probably were to some extent true, but they were really sort of side effects of miscommunications rather than an actual expression of my intention or feeling. After diagnosis, do you feel the diagnosis help you? So I actually, I also have ADHD. ADHD is the only thing that I've successfully found diagnosis for. All of these were things that I kind of worked out for myself. And then I did seek an autism diagnosis and an ADHD diagnosis at the same time in the UK. But the UK health system, most health systems are very loath to diagnose any kind of neurodivergence for anyone who is productive, basically. These things are seen entirely as pathologies by the uh, large-scale health systems. And so if you're not struggling, if you're not failing to be productive, then you're not, I don't really see the point in diagnosing you. And so... So you seek help from the NHS, the medical health system in the UK? Yeah, uh, from the NHS and a little bit through the university. And it's a long process. If you ever come across it, you have to do a bunch of tests, which are completely perplexing. They are made at autistic people by a bunch of doctors who are sort of trying to understand autistic people without ever having the idea of asking autistic people. There's a huge issue that both for neurodivergence and transness, the medical system is almost devoid of neurodivergent and trans people to help them understand these systems. And it doesn't really see that as a problem. It Have th- you ever seen a really good doctor in ADHD or autism or trans? Not particularly, but actually when I was really kind of going after these, it was during the coronavirus lockdowns. Mm-hmm. So I've only managed to see like, you know, less than a half dozen doctors over that period. I'm sure some wonderful ones exist. And the ones I did see seemed fine, but it was a medical system really under a lot of uh, pressure that had only moments of time to spend on a bodily healthy um, neurodivergent person. Drink some water. (laughs) (laughs) Then how long have you been coming out? As trans. So it was, after I came back from the US, I restarted a PhD from scratch, which took four years. It was kind of over that time that I was understanding transness, understanding it as a thing that could apply to me and kind of deciding like, yes, this is something that I at the very least want to explore. And like, exploration of transness is a really healthy thing to do. Even if you turn around at some point and you're like, I'm not actually trans, it's a very good way to understand and see yourself and whichever way you go to feel quite affirmed in that. So I didn't really feel comfortable coming out in the UK and in the uh, academic system I was in, particularly when I was really kind of certain, yes, this is a thing that is true about me. I was coming to the end of my PhD and I had to both successfully defend my PhD and also find a job. And both of those were things that I thought feared being discriminated against for being trans, particularly 
it's a very going through coming out as trans is a kind of second adolescence and there's all the ungracefulness and uh, awkwardness maybe not for everyone but certainly for me of that period and so I held off on coming out or starting medical transition until I think basically the day after I defended my PhD thesis I uh, got access to hormones and started transition properly and then three months after that I moved to the Netherlands by that point I was already out in social situations so my kind of local friends in the UK knew I was trans. I kind of was out in any social things as soon as I came here. And it was only about a month before I just did a full, like, basically wore a dress to work, came out fully socially, and it's a bunch of clothes in my wardrobe that I haven't felt the need to wear ever since. The first time I saw you, you were wearing a skirt. Mm. Sometimes I slightly regret not coming out the moment that I moved, just because then... Everyone here would only know me as me. But there was also a period of kind of feeling it out, feeling if it felt safe, if the department felt like a place... In a new that... department here in the Netherlands. Yes, yeah. If my like direct supervisors showed any signs of being particularly transphobic, that kind of thing. So I think it was sensible to do it this way. But it does mean that some people kind of had to meet me twice. And there's a little bit of a shadow of the first person they met on the second. Maybe I can ask you a question. <laughs> Every time I try <laughs> yeah. to ask a very difficult question, I just look down like, oh, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> um, hey, we're, we're told to think that discussing and thinking about a much more fluid form of gender is wrong. Like, that's a thing we're socialized to believe. I'm, I'm really delighted to hear your questions. <laughs> you shouldn't feel like you can ask any trans person any question you want, but you should definitely feel like you can question things about gender and sexuality mm. and that it's a positive thing to be doing so. Oh, thank you. My question is, if you didn't receive an offer from the Netherlands and you learned that you have to stay in the UK for longer, will you come out so soon, so quickly? It's a good question. I think I probably would have. Like, there's a bit of coming out, which is just... A minor act of rebellion, and a rebellion against what? Against the against... family? Against the institution? I think against, like, I think our like European kind of colonial capitalist societies are based on a lot of fundamental pillars. One of which is a very categorical, empirical, pseudo scientific understanding of the world, and suggesting that something like gender, which is a taught to us from a very young age as a kind of immediate and important and often immutable facet of people to turn around and be like, you can change your gender, also gender. Like, I'm, I'm non-binary, I address them, but I don't really believe in gender. I think it's a kind of fallow concept. I don't think it really captures very much about the self. For those who feel a lot of positive feelings about their gender, I don't want to take that away from them at all. But yeah. I am quite happy to be doing my small part to dismantle the institution of gender. But I think that that is quite a direct pushing back against a lot of the ideas of the society I was brought up in. Even especially, actually, of the education system I went through. Like, I was training to be a scientist most of my life. And you are taught to believe in an empirical and quite categorical universe. And reassuringly, the deeper you get into physics, the more that that kind of breaks down. Yeah would be a detriment to my work now to hold the kind of beliefs that we are to have about physics.
that it is a sort of system of perfectly working cogs and gears and weights and balances. You said you already did some coming out when you were in the UK. Does the Netherlands offer accelerate your coming out process? You think? I think until you know that what your future is going to look like, it's very hard to plan for it. And so there was just kind of until I knew that I would have a job in academia,、mm-hmm. have a place to be, have a place to live. I wasn't really planning for the future. I was just getting through day to day, and so yeah, I think this is a very hypothetical question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to tell. I hope. I think just that hypothetical me is sort of universally happier if I come out, regardless of the circumstance. But it probably would have happened at different times and in different ways. I actually, the reason that I came out fully here was out of the blue. One morning, we got an email saying. It's International Coming Out Day, and I didn't—I'd never heard of this before. Me neither.、Uh, immediately sent me into a minor panic, but quite quickly I was like, "Okay, this is a good excuse. Let's get this out the way. Let's just do this." And so, you know, would have been very possible to not receive that email, and would have taken longer. It'll be another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah one at least. <laughs> wow! And when you come to Netherlands, do you feel? The environment is more friendly for trans people. I think it's a more permissive society generally. Certainly, Amsterdam has been kind of sanctuary for a lot of groups, but including queer communities.、Mm-hmm. I think there's actually less visible trans people here than I was aware of in the UK. Most most of my life in the UK has been between London and Cambridge and South England, basically, which is quite metropolitan. Not always particularly forward-thinking, but like there was a good amount of trans people around me. Whereas I feel like there's kind of less here, at least in this small town. But there's also some more trans-positive laws here. Like it is possible to get a passport here with no gender signifier. There are laws currently going through government to allow changing your gender in the town hall to be easier. Although actually there. It is just male and female gender. Basically, there's a bit of、uh, incoherence between different parts of the state about whether non-binary people exist. And there's been a real strong and worryingly kind of across all the way up to the halls of government reactionary backlash against transness in the UK, kind of as the、uh, most socially acceptable form of a broader anti-LGBT, often just anti-feminist. Very backlash. Trans people are the kind of newest and most、uh, sensitive place for those who want to push against social progress to do so. And that conversation is starting here. Like those same, we often call them trans exclusionary radical feminists or turfs. Those same turfs are literally getting on a plane and coming over here to start、uh, trying to push the same ideas. But it's less developed and. The medical system is a little bit friendlier here, so yeah, it is. It did seem like a slightly safer, easier place to come out. So you moved to Netherlands. So what kind of communities you were seeking here? So there's a quite easy community in the academic world. Like lots of us are expats. It's quite a uniform community, so it's not the only community that I want to be in. Lots of people though find all the community they need amongst other academics.、Mm-hmm. There's a lot of kinship and shared experience. I immediately, on coming here, went looking for activist 
um, specifically climate activist communities, got engaged and involved in that, almost trying to pick up where I was in the UK as quickly as possible. And that's really lovely. They're actually, they are also mostly scientists, but they're more, more radicalised, basically, more engaged. And it's really nice to have communities of other people who are equally kind of knowledgeable and worried about the climate. It can be very disassociating. I think this is something that a huge fraction of people are labouring under to kind of know and understand at least the basics of we are in a time of climate collapse, but to then feel like the world around you is continuing as normal and wondering if everyone else just doesn't know or doesn't react. And so finding communities of people engaged in direct action is something I recommend for anyone who's in that state of trapped anxiety because finding community is the most important thing. Did you manage to find a community when you were in the UK? Yes, I did. My partner and I, we when I think the first part of the most recent IPCC report came out, which was... What is IPCC? The IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it's basically the UN report on climate change. And because it's the UN report, it's the one kind of uh, passing through all of these imperial powers. It's one of the more conservative ones, but even it is absolutely unequivocal and direct in saying we are in a time of massive climate breakdown and we have very little time to make big radical shifts in all of our lives, particularly on economic scales, more so arguably even in individual scales, and that there is a lot of reason for governments and businesses to be changing their patterns of behaviour. And the report doesn't say that, but if you then look at the world, you then see that that simply isn't happening, and that is quite radicalising in and of itself. And so that came out, and me and my partner, I think we found on Twitter a uh, protest, an Extinction Rebellion protest, and we went and we spotted some scientists in white coats, and we were like, we're scientists, and they were like, oh, great. Uh, I occasionally do different forms of outreach in white coats, in a white coat. I, uh, it's weird, we would never wear white coats uh, as astronomers. Yeah. In fact, I think white coats have some difficult history and associations with them, but it is quite a powerful, immediate sing- uh, signal. So yeah, like I gave uh, a speech recently at another university here in the Netherlands wearing a white coat, and amongst other things, Putting a white coat on is quite warm, so that's nice. <laughs> when, you're, when you're standing outside. <laughs> when you're standing outside giving a windy speech, yeah. So I've, I've recently like got to the point where I was brave enough to get up on stage and give speeches, and I hope to do more of that. Because I am not a European citizen, people from the UK are no longer citizens of Europe, I can't risk being arrested, and so I quite specifically don't do anything illegal. Especially because I, I would really like to not be a British citizen anymore. I'd be pretty happy to be a Dutch citizen. And so I need to kind of stay on the right side of the bureaucracy until I qualify for that. So I make resources. I do a lot of kind of person-to-person organising, help planning events and sometimes supporting those events, but not like directly involved doing the uh, disruptive action. Basically, I support in every way that I can find. Part of getting involved in quite radical climate action is because I don't really believe in a future. I think that we will see the effects of climate collapse worsening and shortening our lives. I think we already do. We had, for example, this year a summer warmer than has ever been in the UK and a winter where lots of people couldn't afford to heat themselves. 
I see it as kind of an empirical scientific reality that that's going to worsen. I have a lot of sadness about that. It's lessened a lot by actually getting involved in different forms of direct action. To me, it's interesting because on one hand, you talk passionately about these activities, and I can see pure passion, and you enjoy doing it, and you、mm. find some kind of acknowledgement identity by doing so. On the other hand, you don't see any way out, and you feel very not optimistic at all. Yeah, I'm doing this because it's the only thing that can be done. Well, it's this or nothing, and doing nothing feels even worse. And I feel a lot more responsibility to do this, particularly as a scientist. I feel like there's a chance that that society will look back in ten, fifteen years at scientists and be like, "Why didn't you tell us?" And no amount of us saying that we did is going to really persuade people. But also, I think that a lot of our what are seen as like social and economic realities are built off the back of nineteenth and twentieth century and twenty third century science. The ideas of kind of measuring and computing and Working out the world, and I think that is actually now hurting us. It's giving those who hold a lot of institutional power the chance to kind of legitimise what is basically an entirely selfish position that they want to continue doing the thing that is very profitable. Scientists have been quite strongly conditioned not to speak out, to be very conservative and careful with the things they put out into the world, in a way that's. Giving a lot of space to empower those who draw the most power from the status quo to preserve it, and so yeah, I don't necessarily think that anything will keep us from a really much worse world that we are currently creating. But I find acting against it feels better than not. I have energy, so let's use it because I don't want to look back and be like I just let that energy go to waste or even worse. I actually feel like just in my day-to-day job, even though my job is working out how stars move, I actually feel like I'm probably contributing to the problem. I think I'm giving legitimacy to universities that then give legitimacy to institutions like fossil fuel companies. In some ways, I'm just trying to be net neutral to push back as much as I empower them. Thank you so much for sharing. I don't know. I I resonate a lot of experience with you because I personally have learning disability,、mm-hmm. and I definitely suffer. Also proud of being neurodivergent、yeah. because now you see I'm doing podcast. I also think, oh, I have the energy, or I'm passionate. I will regret if I don't do it. Yeah, but sometimes it's the only rebellion we have access to. I think making art is always a subversive act. I would call this making art, and I'm really glad you're doing it. Thank you. Let's say goodbye to our audience. Stay tuned. Bye bye. Bye.